Hello, this is Ian Wolfe, producer of Diffusion Science Radio. This show depends on your support. Please make a donation directly with the PayPal button at www.diffusionradio.com or support Diffusion by downloading a free audiobook from audibletrial.com science or go to diffusionradio.com support and click on an Amazon link or buy my nanodrones. This show was first broadcast on the 1st of July, 2013. Diffusion, the international science radio show. We have a bouncer and the doors of perception. The good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths. Toxicology, astro-seismology, magnetism, the dark side, genetically engineered potatoes, planetoid, planetoid. I love that word. (laughs) (laughs) Hello and welcome to Diffusion. Sit back and relax while we inject weird and wonderful science directly into your brain. I'm Ian Wolfe and on this special edition we're looking at the physics of music. But first up, here's the news. The first plants were carnivorous. Bacteria developed photosynthesis first, and there's long been speculation as to how plants acquired the trick of turning sunlight, water and air into food. Somehow, An ancient algae swallowed photosynthesizing bacteria, and the bacteria lived on symbiotically inside the algae. Nobody knew how this could have happened, because nobody had seen an algae that could swallow bacteria. Until now. At the National Institute for Basic Biology in Okazaki, Japan, they studied single-celled algae called Symbomonas, which belongs to one of the oldest algal groups. Symbomonas ordinarily survives by photosynthesizing sunlight, but when they grew it under low light levels, out came a feeding tube. Like something from a miniature horror movie. Most single-celled organisms eat their prey by extending an arm, rather than sucking them up with a straw. The feeding tube led to a bubble-like chamber called a vacuole, a sort of microscopic stomach where the bacteria were supposed to be digested. This is reminiscent of how the waterwheel plant, Aldrovanda vesiculosa, sucks in microscopic aquatic prey, like a miniature Venus flytrap. Symbomonas is like a micro-Venus flytrap, with a straw. The paper, a modern descendant of early green algal phagotrophs, was published in the journal Current Biology. The first green algae may have taken up their bacterial companions in the same way as Symbomonas, except they didn't digest them. The engulfed bacteria could have survived in their new hosts by breaking through the walls of the feeding duct or escaping from the vacuole. They refused to die. Where most plants have grown lazy and just lie in the sun, some plants are still true to their carnivorous origins.
Speech, singing and music are central to all human cultures. I spoke with Professor Joe Wolfe at the University of New South Wales about the physics of music. I began by asking him about the physics of the human voice. Well, it's a very important topic because the voice is used for a very large fraction of human communication. It's a big industry and it's culturally important. It's arguably the most important distinguishing feature of our species. And so there's been a lot of work on it, including that of our lab. But in spite of that, there are still things that we don't know very well because for practical and important ethical reasons, you can't get direct access to the larynx while it's in operation. Uh, you can look at the larynx of cadavers, you can uh, stick cameras up the nose, though we don't actually do that. But the sort of things that the physicist would really like to know are experimental variables that we just can't get hold of, and so you need to do things indirectly. And our labs developed a few powerful indirect techniques for measuring the mechanical and acoustical properties of the vocal folds while they're vibrating. We do most of our research on singers. Part of that is because singing itself is a very interesting and culturally important part of, of voice. Another reason is that singers are very good at holding parameters constant, which is important for physical experiments. So a singer is capable of keeping the pitch and the intensity at the same level for a while, making experiments relatively easy. And we're also interested in it because our lab specialises in the acoustics of music, uh, musical instruments and the singing voice, as well as our interest in more general speech science. That's terrific. So indirectly, how do you look at the larynx? Well, there are a number of techniques. A standard one used clinically is to put a pair of electrodes on either side and pass a small electric current between them. That allows you to measure the uh, parameter related to the vocal fold contact. As the vocal folds touch, suddenly the electrical uh, conductance across the throat is changed and you can measure that. We do acoustic measurements at the mouth. We send hundreds of different frequency sound waves into the mouth and we measure what comes back. And that gives us rather a lot of information about what's going on in the vocal tract, but also about the vocal folds. And then we can change the acoustic conditions. We can ask people to finate in different ways or give them different radiating environments outside the mouth to imp impose different loads on the vocal folds. And what can you tell about how people project their voices? Because there seems to be something that singers do and a lot of professional performers can do where they can make their voice much louder than an untrained person would know how to do. What are they doing to be able to amplify their voice? Because they're not just shouting or, or singing louder. They're doing something clever with their mouth, it seems. Yes, there are a few clever things that singers do. Uh, for male singers and for some of the lowest female singing ranges, there's what's called the singer's formant. By lowering the larynx a bit, you can produce a narrowing of the vocal tract just above the larynx, and that makes it easier to transmit power from the larynx into the main vocal tract, and therefore out into the radiant field outside. 
So that lowering of the larynx can produce a boost. Now the boost works preferentially for frequencies of a few thousand vibrations per second. So above the range of the fundamentals of the various musical instruments that might be accompanying the singer. And in fact, in a range where even orchestras don't have a lot of power. So it allows you to get part of your voice signal up above the spectrum of the accompanying orchestra. And once the listener can identify that, it appears that our ears can track the whole of the voice and extract the voice signal from the, that of the accompaniment. Very important for professional opera singers who sing without uh, amplification and sometimes with orchestras of several dozen musicians and you know, horn sections. Imagine a Wagnerian orchestra, for instance. It's very important to do that loudly, but also to do it efficiently so as not to damage the voice. And of course, this same mechanism allows you to produce the same level of sound with less effort. Oh, that's uh, remarkable. For sopranos, that doesn't really work because even if you make that narrow frequency boost, uh, sopranos are singing in such a high range that the harmonics of their voice are a long way apart. So for one note, a harmonic might fall in that range and for another note, it might not. But they don't need it nearly as much as, as you and I do. Uh, our fundamental, if I go 100 hertz like that, uh, 100 vibrations per second, your ear is not very sensitive. It's... You know, a hundred times more sensitive if you can get up into the range of the high soprano. And so already the fundamental of their voice is in a range where the ear is very sensitive. Uh, they have another trick that they can use as well, which is to tune the principal resonance of the vocal tract, one of the ones that we normally use for speech to identify vowels and some consonants. They tune that to the note that they're singing and that gives them a very efficient uh, radiation and quite high power. It's uh, quite impressive how a uh, operatic soprano can, can be heard clearly above an orchestral accompaniment. And how would they tune their voice to the note? Mainly by opening the mouth more, a little bit with the tongue and perhaps the soft palate as well, but either by smiling more or lowering the jaw as they go up the scale. Uh, teachers do talk about this, but they hardly need to. We find that in, in our measurements, uh, even singers who've never had any singing training do this. If you're a woman with a high voice and you use this range, you automatically learn to use it because it's so much easier. The sort of tunings that men can use are rather more difficult and, and less general. It may be that over a certain part of your range, you can tune the same resonance to the second harmonic, sometimes the third or even fourth harmonic. And many men singers do that. Again, they don't have to be trained. Uh, I discovered when we first looking at this that I do it myself to a limited degree. And I've never been taught singing either. But anything that makes you uh, more efficient is something that you, you automatically learn to reproduce. Absolutely. And are there other tricks that singers use or other tricks with the voice. I mean, one of the stranger things I've heard people do is the tube and throat singing, where they're making more than one sound with their mouth at the same time. Yes, we've looked at that a little bit in the lab. Uh, it, it sounds a bit like a, a whistle overlying the voice, but related to it, and 
Perhaps it's time to hear a, a sample of that. So that was Jeming Chen. He's a postdoctoral researcher in our lab who also did his PhD with us and he travelled to Mongolia to learn the technique. Uh, what he does there is first chooses a, a reasonably low note to start with uh, and he uses what he'd call a pressed voice. It's a way of producing vocal fold vibrations that have lots of harmonics strong high harmonics and not such a strong fundamental and then what he does is he tunes this vocal tract resonance we were talking about to a rather high harmonic on that it might be the you know the fifth sixth seventh eighth harmonic he varies it by changing the opening of the mouth and the position of the tongue and he gets a very narrow tuning, so it selects just one of those harmonics and not the neighbouring ones. And so the effect is that you have one of the harmonics a long, long way, a couple of octaves or more above the fundamental, so it's we're not used to associating them on their own. And this fairly pure amplification of just one harmonic makes it sound rather like a whistle plus the fact that the fundamental isn't changing. The, so you, our whole sensory system uh, is more adapted for signals that change than those that stay constant. So the, the steady drone of the fundamental you get used to, you don't notice it. And what you do notice is the thing that's changing, and what's changing is which harmonic is being amplified. So he's using the vocal tract a little bit like a bugle, getting all of those notes from the harmonic series. And, uh, well, perhaps just listen to them again as he goes through the series. Thanks, Jeremy. You're listening to Diffusion Science Radio. Send emails to science at diffusionradio.com. We're brought to you across Australia on the Community Radio Network and podcast over the internet on www.diffusionradio.com. And now, here's Jerming Chen with A Desert Lullaby, a short original melody showing the notes of this series in action with harmonic throat singing. slightly different note with the voice what happens when you're breathing helium and your voice changes well first uh, I warn that inhaling helium is dangerous inhaling a couple of liters just once is okay but a very deep breath 
of helium could deprive your brain of oxygen for long enough to do damage. So be very careful doing this. It's a fun party trick, but it is potentially dangerous. So, if you replace the ordinary air in your vocal tract with helium, then you have a medium with a much higher speed of sound, and so you shift the resonances of the vocal tract up. You don't change the frequency of vibration of the vocal folds. That's determined almost entirely by the tension in the folds, the pressure in your lungs and the geometry around the larynx. So you don't change the pitch. You do, however, change the timbre. And it's such a spectacular change that many people will think that they've heard a change in pitch. Uh, the main reason for that is that when you're listening to speech, you don't concentrate on pitch. If you listen to a sentence, you probably don't even know what pitch range it was. If you listen to a sentence, you probably don't even know what pitch range it was. Uh, but in that sentence, my pitch varied by more than an octave. But when we're ears are in the speech mode, we tend not to notice that. So if you hold a note constant and compare ordinary air and helium... Ah, listen carefully to get the idea of this pitch. Ah, the voice is different, but the pitch remains the same. You'll notice that the pitch is the same in the two. However, as soon as we put words on that, you'll notice that the voice is very much changed, and the thing of the voice that's changed are these resonances that determine the phonemes. All of the vowels have been shifted into the Donald Duck range. And I understand that the Donald Duck speech is made by speeding up recordings of ordinary human speech. So it's different from helium speech in that when Donald Duck speaks, not only his resonances, but also the fundamental have been shifted up by that process. In helium speech, the fundamental stays where it is. It's the resonances that move. Hmm. Now, that, that's really interesting. And you mentioned that we listen in, in speech mode. So we have another way of listening when we're listening to music. Is that what you meant? Yes. The two signals are very different. They're in some ways almost complementary. So if you pick up the text of a play, you'll notice that the things that are essentially written down are the phonemes, the different speech sounds that the actors have to produce, but there are no instructions for the actors as to what pitch they have to do. They could say, Halt who goes, Horatio, he you come as... Or they could say, Halt who goes, Horatio. None of that is specified, it's left to the performer. Rather, what Shakespeare or another playwright instructs the actors is how to manipulate the acoustical properties of the vocal tract to produce the speech sounds. If you then take some, let's say, take one of the Bach fugues, for instance, there, there's no instruction about the timbre. You could play it on a harpsichord or an organ or a piano. Uh, instead, there is only instruction about the pitch and the rhythm. So the two things that are completely forgotten in the play text are the information that's given to the performing musician and 
the timbre of the sounds, what we'd call the phonemes or the speech sounds, are given explicitly to the actor, but not given to the performing musician. And it appears, I'm not a psychologist, but it appears from perceptual studies that when we're in one mode, we listen for these separately and with differing degrees of importance. We also use categorical perception in those domains. So in speech, we divide all the possible combinations of the vocal tract variables into different phonemes, which differ from one language to another, but they're discrete. In a sense, they're digitized, and digital signals have the advantage that you can process them very rapidly, and uh, they're immune to noise to a certain extent. In music, the pitch is digitized and the rhythm is also digitized. Uh, so, you know, we think, was that a quaver or was that a semi-quaver? Um, just as, you know, in speech, was that a d or a t? Uh, and the difference between those is discrete. We, at some point, we jump from one to another. That was an augmented fourth and that was a fifth. And if you slide between the two, we sort of notice it jump from one to, to another. So categorical perception, very important in rapid and noise-free information processing, whether um, in a machine or in your head, and it appears that we do both of those. I've written at some length on that, if uh, you're interested. Uh, I hope you're going to give our, our website as a reference for that. And, uh, and the website is? Uh, if you search for music acoustics, uh, you'll certainly find our lab site, which presents a lot of our research in a musician-friendly way, and also a lot of the background that you would need to, to understand music science to some degree. Uh, is there anything further you'd like to add that I haven't asked? Well, uh, I hope you listeners have gathered that this is a lot of fun, as much research is, you know, all around the physics people, the physics building, there are people doing things that are a lot of fun. And what we're doing is a lot of fun. Some people think it's too much fun. We have wonderful musicians coming in as our experimental subjects, and, and that's always a joy, and we're very grateful that they do that. Uh, but it's actually quite important, too. Uh, people forget just how important music is to our culture, just what fraction of your life is spent in the presence of music. That famous experiment where you remove the soundtrack from the movie and suddenly you know the emotions go out of us will convince you just how important music is. And so and uh, around about 10% of the Australian population at any time is learning a, a musical instrument. So there's even at that level is a an important industry. And so the research that we do mainly aims to inform practicing musicians and more importantly teachers and students about how their instruments operate, about some of these interesting and subtle techniques that can be used on the voice or on instruments. And so we'd like to make that available to musicians and teachers of musicians for that reason. I guess the, the last thing I would ask is, are there any experiments you'd offer, you'd suggest to listeners to try and uh, get a feel for some of the physics of music? Yes, in fact, there's a few suggested on that music acoustic site, but there's also uh, a general online site 
that we're making called PhysClips, P-H-Y-S-C-L-I-P-S, and yes, the search engines know where it is. Uh, one of the volumes on that is called Waves and Sound, and in that there's quite a lot of downloadable experiments that aimed at, at high school level students, but fun for everybody. And there's quite a lot of film clips of, of different experiments involving the voice and musical instruments. Terrific. Well, Professor Joe Wolfe, thank you very much. My pleasure. That was Professor Joe Wolfe in the Physics Department at the University of New South Wales talking about the physics of voice and music. You can find out more at www.phys.unsw.edu.au slash music. And a special thanks to Jerming Chen for re-recording the harmonic singing clips. Bats produce sounds that are not audible to human ears. So these ultrasound bat signals were digitally reduced to frequencies that we can hear. Then the different bat sounds were assigned different keys on a keyboard. On this keyboard, the only real bat organ, Ulrich Seidel played the Batman theme which was composed by Neil Hefty in 1966 for the 1960s Batman TV show and the 1966 Batman film. The original idea was Walter Sontjens. The video clip will be embedded on diffusionradio.com. So here's the Batman theme as played by bats. And that's all from us this week on Diffusion. Would you like to join us? We need more people contributing stories to Diffusion. You can send your contributions, opinions, congratulations, standing ovations, gasps of amazement, and helpful suggestions to science at diffusionradio.com. That's science at diffusionradio.com. And please send us an email so we know that you're listening and you want to hear more episodes. A special thanks again to Jerming Ching, who went to the trouble of re-recording the harmonic singing clips for Diffusion. I produce Diffusion, which is broadcast around Australia on the Community Radio Network, syndicated on the National Science Foundation's Science360 internet radio station. Subscribe to our podcast on the Diffusion website, www.diffusionradio.com. That's www.diffusionradio.com. I'm Ian Wolfe. Join us inside your audio device of choice for more science wondering next week on Diffusion Science Radio. Science is fun. It helps you to learn, to know, and to appreciate. When you study science, you may go on field trips. You discover the marvelous interrelationships between all living things. You learn to read the history of the Earth as it is written in rocks and fossils. You find out what makes things tick. Everything from a molecule to a living organism. In the study of science is found the most useful and satisfying knowledge of man. Knowledge of his physical world, its past, its present, and its future. And in your moments of relaxation, 
now and in the years to come, you will find the study of science leading you into fascinating pursuits. Photography. Collecting. Why study science? Study science because you will find in the study of science a richer, more rewarding life.